Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Joan Taylor. I'm Professor in the Theology and Religious Studies Department and I'm here today to, uh, with, with this wonderful uh, a practitioner of um, traditional Māori, uh, tamoko, tattoo, and we're going to be talking about uh, tamoko and spirituality, body art, in traditional Māori practice. So welcome to Mokunui Arangi Smith, who I know as Moko. I'm very, very pleased to have you with me today. And uh, it's a, a great pleasure. Welcome. My name is Mokunui Arangi, and um, I'm very excited to be here to speak to this topic and, and to share some ideas with you, Joan, and, and other people who are listening. So thank you for having me. Um, I think to start off with, it would be fantastic if people heard a little bit more about you, um, Moko. Um, your name is Moko. You work in Tamoko. Is there anything in that connection you'd like to share? And some might say that the, you know, the seeds were planted with the name. Um, my parents gave me this name, which was an uncle's name, which was also a great grandfather's name. Um, and as the name of a, a mountain down on our east coast side, uh, out of Gisborne. Um, so the name translates to the great tattoo in the sky uh, or the great lizard in the sky. And, and it's a very strong name. But can we start off by really looking at uh, what is traditional tamoko? What is the, the, the tradition in, in um, the culture? Um, mm. so that people will, will understand how vital it is in terms of, um, of Māori understanding of themselves. And, and it's not just body art, it's not just decorative, it's also a spiritual, there's a spiritual dimension to, to what takes mm. place. So, so tāmoko in itself is the art form of tattooing. The face, the body, mainly the face, the hips, the legs, but it, it wasn't restricted just to those uh, parts of the body, but they are the most essential parts of the body. They are the, the seat of mana, of tapu, of our intellectual potency, of our spiritual potency, of our sexual potency, of our strength and our um, physical abilities. You know, we, we honoured and we adorned these parts of the body by not just tattooing them, but by literally carving the skin. Um, and we have these really simple tools called uhi, which are a hafted handle made from wood with um, different types of bird bone or various types of bone uh, lashed onto it, sharpened, and then either shaped into a, a bone cone or a flat cutting blade. 
then we got into really intricate uh, adornment of, of the face and the, the hips and the thighs. So that's tāmoko uh, as an art form, but it is kind of this, it's really the tip of the iceberg uh, in that it's the part which is seen, it's the visible markings, but they are reflective of so much which is unseen in terms of what they represent, the stories they tell, the, the genealogies they reference, um, the status they, they denote, the tribal affiliations they denote, the beauty, the you know, artistic beauty and, and sexual appearance was definitely a factor um, for, for receiving these things. Um, so moko is, it's kind of this crossroads where almost all elements of the culture come to meet and then are essentialized into these markings, into this ritual process as well of, of transforming the skin, transforming the appearance, and doing so, we say, uh, we are also transforming ourselves internally. The male's face, when it's tattooed, is called the mataora. And the mataora can be translated to the living face, but it can also be uh, translated to the, fa the face of vitality, you know, so it, it does speak to that the vitalness of this art form within our identities and our cultural expression uh, as Māori. To contextualise, moko is, it's Māori specific, but Māori as a people come from, you know, wider Polynesia. For us, for our iwi, we maintain that we come from Taputapuatea, uh, the island of Tahiti. And that was one of the most sacred islands of the Pacific. Um, and it was known as the, the university island where the most sacred, the most learned would gather to hold their rituals, to teach, to learn, um, to honor the gods. Uh, and, and oftentimes when people were also voyaging through the Pacific to the different islands, they, they would pull into Tapatapuatia to receive instruction or to pay their respects or to uh, maintain political alliances. And from Tapatapuatia, uh, some of my ancestors traveled down through the Pacific into Rarotonga, into the other Cook Islands, and on their way down um, to Aotearoa, New Zealand. And you can see the previous photo was Tapu Tapu Atea Marae, uh, which is a stone ritual space um, for offerings and sacrifices and, and ritual. Um, and in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we call what you see now um, these highly carved whare, highly carved tribal meeting houses. This is what we call a marae. Um, so there's been this huge evolution of the marae and, and of the culture as such from the Pacific um, to contemporary New Zealand. And you can see it in the adornment. We got heavily into decorative work, decorative carving, decorative weaving, um, and, and decorative tattooing, moko. But we, we come to 
this image and and this is really representative of the colonial dynamic that was in New Zealand. Um, this is Major General Horatio Robley from England, um, who came to fight with the British against Māori uh, and down in Tauranga. And in doing so, he actually became quite close with Māori and, and married into one of the iwi um, and was given a very prominent chief's um, cousin as a wife. He was actually able to, to you know, notate and sketch images of daily Māori life as well as the tattooing process itself. Um, when most Europeans weren't really able to get close enough, they didn't have that, that relationship to get that perspective. Um, or if they did, it wasn't, it wasn't very long, it was in passing. Um, whereas Horatio Robley lived it, uh, and in doing so, he, he gained some knowledge, but he also developed uh, a fascination for um, these dried heads. We call them mokomokai, ancestors' heads, which are generally dried um, to, to keep them around the family and you, you'd address them uh, on important occasions. You'd bring them out from their caves or their storage areas um, to mourn them, to honour them, to have their presence uh, during an, an important occasion um, where maybe they had taken part in the previous aspects of that occasion or uh, there are genealogical ties. Um, so for us, these weren't gruesome. They, they, they were loved. But the European, um, I guess, fetish for, for anything that was exotic and macabre was very real at that time. And, and it developed into a trade. There was a, a big trade around these tattooed heads. Uh, mokomokai. And how they obtained them, I don't know, but it, it got perverted and um, it got to the point where Māori were offered muskets for these heads. Muskets were worth a lot of money back then um, and they were the height of war, war technology. So it, it created a whole industry around um, basically killing people for their moko headhunting. And throughout the country, there was a hunt for people with beautiful moko, um, but it was also done in another way, which was to, to knock off people who didn't have moko and tattoo them post-mortem or add to what they had um, because it would fetch a higher price. And through that, we, we come to the place of, of the, the decline of the art form because it was no longer safe to show your face. You know, as a, as a Maori male, you, there was a price on your head. This is one of the main factors why, why moko uh, disappeared as a practice amongst men. Um, the other one was the assimilation of Christianity. In some instances, that assimilation went really well and, and the two cultures kind of met and went forward hand in hand. So there were Māori Christians who still wore moko, who still carried out our practices. And there were others who 
um, who basically committed to dying as the the last Mohort ones and the last um, ones who held on to our cultural traditions. Um, and from them onwards, their progeny would be um, assimilated Christians. So there's a whole spectrum there. But in terms of of the decline of the art form, men were the first to to stop being mukul. Basically, into the into the twenties, thirties, uh, women were were also starting to uh, turn away from the art form. And then you come into the nineteen seventies, you had the last generation uh, of women who were tattooed back in the nineteen twenties and thirties. And once they started to pass away. There was um, there was a death of the art form. You can see the beauty of of the work done on our old people's faces. There was a huge market for anything that was exotic, anything from the South Pacific, you know, which we still see today in the various museums around the world, the various auction houses around the world. The full of um, artifacts of uh, treasures from other people's cultures, who knows how they were um, obtained. Um, definitely down in our area, there was a lot of looting by, uh, by European settlers who needed to pay the bills, buy more rum, um, all these kinds of things. And, and there's lots of money to be made by taking um, our taonga, our, our treasured items. And the heads of our ancestors themselves were, were so adorned that, that they were basically in the same category. The idea of our ancestors' uh, relationship to the remains of family, uh, we weren't afraid of, even to this day, we're still not afraid of uh, the dead body as such. You know, we... We kiss our dead when we see them. We um, we speak to them directly as if they're still alive. We sing to them. We've got our own practices during the funeral time. For us, the the, the dead body still contains uh, some of the essence of the person. So that's not something to to uh, denigrate or to uh, disregard as such. Whereas perhaps for the Europeans of the time, that was totally able to be objectified, you know, the dead body of, of a pharaoh or of a king or a, a Maori dried head. Um, it was merely an object of curiosity and historical, anthropological, you know, interest. This is an image of um, my tupuna, one of my ancestors, Tauka, uh, whose name my brother carries as well. Um, and again, just showing the, the beautiful Beautiful layout of the moko on his face. So if I was able to get a moko done on myself, I'd be looking to an image like this to give myself uh, the points of reference for how the, the face was tattooed, to what extent, um, the references in it, because these things do vary between tribes. Um, and then this is another image of a death mask um, from this book called The Pressure of Sunlight Falling. 
uh, and there's a New Zealand photographer who went and photographed these death, death masks around the world. Uh, and they were, again, created out of the interest of the ethnological, you know, scientists of the time, ethnographers, looking at the structure of the Māori face, looking at, you know, what were for them curios. And in a way, we look at this and think, you know, how perverted for these people outside of this particular family to be handling and, and dealing with this person's head. It's specifically family information. Whereas perhaps now we can look at it with a little bit of disdain and a little bit of disgust at the insensitivities of its creation. And on the other side, where I'm personally, I'm very grateful to be able to see the image as well, because for someone who's trying to revive the art form, these points of reference um, are super valuable. You know, they're, they're not a fanciful idea. They're not a sketch done quickly in the field and then taken home and uh, elaborated on. You know, with this image, there's no, um, there's no qualms and no doubt around its accuracy. Whereas a lot of the paintings that we see uh, of our own ancestors, they have been touched up, they have been modified for the artist's appeal. And so as a, as a historical reference and a, and a detailed reference for reviving an art form, um, sometimes they're not that applicable. And, and we, do, you know, we approach these things with some caution. Um, whereas an image like this, is beautifully accurate and um, it's, it's very powerful for someone like me to see. I was blown away when I first saw that. If I was to explain a little bit more about the Māori world, just to understand really some of the, the context around moko. Firstly, we, we have concepts of tapu and noa. Now, tapu is a word which um, actually the English word taboo came from, where, where taboo has, has more to do with something being inappropriate or off limits. For us, tapu is very different. It's more of a state, and it's a state one personally can enter into and come out of, go into a state of tapu, and out of a state of tapu into a state of noa, meaning um, of, of balance and of um, clearness uh, and normal day-to-day -day functioning. But the tapu is really a, a space of charged sacredness. And maybe the use of the word sacred is even misleading uh, because it can be sacred in a sanctified way, but it can also be sacred in, in, in a sense that it's, um, it's of the divine, it's of the godly, it's of the spiritual realm. But it can also be tapu in the sense that it's, it's dangerously potent. For example, an area in, in a river could be tapu because of a, a death that's occurred there, um, because of um, a guardian which is there, and that might speak to its 
you know, practical danger, uh, but it might also speak to to just the spiritual energy around that place and it's how charged it is. So for us, our cemeteries are tapu. We we go there with reverence. We go there with respect. We are tapu when we are in the cemetery ourselves, so we don't eat. Um, during the tamoko process, we are tapu, so uh, we enter into that with a certain mind space um, and a certain energy, and we maintain that until the uh, process is completed, and then we come out of that tapu uh, time period and, and energy with uh, using clearing prayers and, and food, basically, as our way to, to transition from one state to the other. Um, but tamoko in itself, for us, is highly tapu, uh, mainly because it is a, an art form which, for us, comes from the gods, comes from the gods of the underworld, which is the spirit realm. And it also is an art form which breaks the skin, lets blood flow particularly on the face. And so for us, uh, blood is very tapu. It, it's an essential part of the body. Um, and it, uh, you know, it has the life force in it. So that is tapu, as well as the head being the seat, the receptacle of, of knowledge um, and everything that is inherited from the gods into us. So that makes the head and the moko process doubly tapu. Uh, and you can see in the image, the tohunga, the, the priestly figure um, of our old times, he's got his hands behind his back, he's kneeling on the ground, and he's being fed by a child who's feeding him a potato on a stick. And in that image, we, we understand that tapu comes, you know, the tohunga himself, the priest, is often in a state of, of very uh, potent tapu. And in doing so, he's very restricted in what he can do. He can't touch food. He can't go about normal daily tasks. And anything he touches or she touches becomes tapu as well um, and can cause harm to people if they approach it unknowingly and unskillfully. So the tohunga has to be fed. Um, without him touching the food in any way. Same with water, same with um, other um, contact with other humans. And for that reason, the tohunga was, was feared because um, if those tapu were broken, uh, there was oftentimes a spiritual cost to it. And either, I mean, we have many stories of, of the gods uh, playing their part in rebalancing the equation by killing the tohunga or killing the weakest link in the group uh, in the situation um, but also sickness would come out of it yeah or some kind of, of loss so there's a lot of fear around tohunga and for that reason um, they were treated with caution uh, but they were also needed to carry out processes like tamoko um, like carving um, like opening ritual situations, um, consultation for, for warfare, for um, harvest, for navigation, all these kinds of things. So for those of you who 
are not familiar with the Māori world, this is a very good glimpse of of the dynamic between um, tapu and noa. And it's not only in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Um, tapu is, is a very common concept through the whole of the Pacific. Um, it's a very fundamental concept. Um, some people, the, the very high-born, were so tapu they couldn't touch other people, they couldn't be mokod. But now, with colonization, Christianity, um, there has also been a, a marriage of the concept of tapu and sacredness of the Christian church. And now, sometimes it's a bit hard to tease the two apart, and even our own people um, get that confused. And this is a beautiful example of a kōrere, which is a, a feeding funnel for that purpose, the purpose of feeding the tohunga so that you know, there was no contact with food. And you can see the degree to which this was you know, highly decorated, very densely carved and, and twisting and spiraling figures um, with their own stories associated. And that speaks to you know, the level of respect and, um, and mana we say, around the tohunga and around the, the acts that they were carrying out. So we come back to the first image of um, the tohunga tāmoko, the tattooing priest, tattooing expert, adorning the face of, of one of the ancestors there lying on the ground uh, with another tohunga to his side chanting, singing, um, prayers and, and old songs to help alleviate the pain and also to help instill um, tribal references into the process. Because um, we believe that the vibrations that are happening during that work are integrated into the moko and integrated into the self. I'll, I'll shift now from the context of, um, of the Māori world of the past to kind of where we're at now. Firstly, to contextualize, um, the word tattoo comes from the Polynesian word tatau, tatau. In those contact um, exchanges that happen between Europeans and Polynesians, Europeans and uh, people from Asia, there was uh, a cross-pollination, right, of... of um, culture and, and inspiration, and that sailors asked to be tattooed by the locals. The sailors then asked the artists on board their ships, the scrimshaw artists, to also tattoo them, you know, once they understood what tattooing was, and that was the genesis of Western tattooing. You know, Western tattooing has had its, its parallel evolution at the same time as uh, Māori Tāmoko and Polynesian tattooing has had its um, its time of, of you know, weakness, really. It's, it's been totally decimated, along with the language, so many other cultural practices. Um, you know, as much as the colonizers helped to dismantle our culture, they also had this real strong fascination with moko, um, as we saw in the heads and, and, and object collection. 
Um, so there was always this, even if Pākehā didn't really want to have anything to do with the Māori world, there was always this meeting point of fascination uh, because there's this kind of the stigma created around them from um, the idea that the face was cast, you know, and how painful that must be. Up until now, people have stayed away from it. And even if it was an option, they would always opt for the machine. Mm. Um, and because of that, our revival has been very strong with the machine. Um, there's been incredible leaps made in terms of artistry. There's, there's amazing consistency and you can take care of the needs of a client or a family or a tribe very easily. You know, mm. you, can, you can tattoo fast. Um, and so in terms of the last 30 years, there's been a huge, huge number of people who have taken on mopo. Yeah, Women have led the way because they, they are the ones who stepped into the unknown and, and stepped into themselves uh, in reclaiming uh, these marks and, and cultural practices, uh, despite what the rest of the country might say. People in the street throw judgment at them, um, you know, come up to them and blatantly, you know, say how much they disagree with it to their face. Really? Both Māori, Māori and Europeans. So it, it took that first wave or first waves of women to, to cut through that and wear it regardless. Mm. And, and then that's just created the confidence for the next generation um, and, uh, you know, other family members eventually becomes a momentum where there's a critical mass of people who, and we say, you know, mokoi tao, um, which means tattoo the world. It doesn't mean tattoo the world as such, but it means, you know, we need to spread this throughout uh, the mm. Māori world. What I really want to um, ask you about is the traditional methods, the, the, the supposedly mm. more painful methods. I, I think that is what, what people know about. That it can definitely be slower. Um, there are things that my cousins and my friends can achieve with a machine which... I would not want to attempt because they're so intricate that the machine has its place uh, within our culture now. It's not a matter of um, of removing the machine from the picture to replace it with the ancestral tools. Now it's a case of um, putting them side by side. But, but the spiritual dimension, surely, if you don't have an electric tool, if you're working with the traditional tools, I would imagine that it's, it's more possible to get into a more authentic space in terms of what this is all about. Mm. Um, definitely people who, who have been tattooed a lot with machine, when they come to lie down on the mat, so we don't work on a table, we work on the floor, on woven mats. Um, we have... I have an assistant stretcher who, you know, holds the skin, gets the right tension, takes care of the body um, while I work. And, and all of those, you know, the sounds that come out of the hand tools, um, the, the sensitivity of the tools, uh, they all help to become factors which create a really holistic experience. Mm -hmm. um, where you can, as you say, go in, 
go into yourself. What I've learned is that the machine still has its part to play in that because when it's coming from a Māori hand and it's surrounded by Māori uh, context, then the machine is mm. it's just a channel. So this tool has come down to me to help me gain the skills and understanding to bring it back to making moko. So mm. to start with, I was I was doing tatau, more uh, Cook Islands, Samoan, Tahitian uh, approach to, to tattooing, which is with the wooden handle, with a, a, a little reach there, which is lashed on to the end of the handle, and then uh, boar's tusk, uh, bone, or ivory comb, which is lashed on to, to the reach, a little arm there. And we tap that into the skin and that, that carries the ink, places the ink into the skin in this kind of pricking motion. So the hand tapped is, is the Polynesian version of tattooing, uh, but it can also be found in, in parts of Asia, up into Northern India, um, whereas other parts of Asia we're much more about hand poking using a single needle or clusters of, of needles or uh, fish spines or um, thorns to, to place ink under the skin. And then on the left of the photo, you see the other tool in my hand, which is the, uh, the Māori uhi, uh, uhi matarau, uhi kohiti. Um, and that was used on the face. So, we basically we had two approaches. One was carving, and the other one was um, hand tap pricking of the ink into the skin. Mm. Um, and you can see on the left there a, a albatross wing bone uh, comb. That one there is is used for laying in dots into the skin, and you do it enough, and the dots become lines, and through that you can you can create your your curving lines or your straight lines, as you need. They're simple tools, but small differences in the tools do make big differences uh, in the work and also distinguish um, their origins. What makes the blade um, in terms of the Māori uhi? We commonly use albatross wing bone. It's a, a, a great material because of its... Uh, tensile strength and the porousness of the material also holds ink um, so when you are tapping the ink is flowing out and it um, you know it helps to create a stream of ink for for while you're tattooing. So what actually was the ink made out of and how does that relate to the ink that you use? Different parts of the country had different plants different different um, materials available um, and so there are different recipes for the ink. Personally, I have never tattooed with um, any traditional inks. Mm. I've only ever used contemporary tattoo ink because um, you can rely on it. Whereas traditional ink uh, was often made from, up north here at least, made from kauri gum, the gum of a tree, mm. a very important tree to us which was burnt and, and the soot, which burnt off it. Um, it's a very resinous tree. So it produces a lot of soot and they'd capture that and they'd mix it down with um, 
the berry juice of the poropuro, or some say the leaf juice of the poropuro. Um, oh. Mix it down with, uh, some people say, um, pigeon fat or shark oil as a carrier. So poropuro means purple, right? So yeah, yeah. It would create a sort of bluey purple hue. Yep. They have they have a particular healing quality to them. And in terms of the revival of our art form, we have lost the knowledge um, of how to carve the skin. This mm. is, you know, what was the unique factor in our art form, other than the aesthetic, was, was the, the way it healed. And we don't know how that happens anymore. And to go experimenting on the face is, you yeah, know, risky business really right. so this is a photo from uh, the process of tattooing my cousin uh, we're working on his hip there really up close you can see the tiny teeth used to to place ink into the skin we're working on a a, a moko called the rapidapi which is a spiral uh, on, on the hips and they've been done differently with the machine and then we come to to do them with the yuhi with the traditional tools and actually the way the machine does it is good for the machine but it doesn't allow our tools to to run the same curve over the body mm. and i i went back and looked at our old carvings and the way that that the spirals were placed on the carvings was more on the hips and and working from that, that hip bone joint and uh, the articulation point so i understood from that straight away that that allowed for the, the role of the tool over the body uh, in a much more achievable way. And you can see the tool in action there and it's just pricking in the, the, the ink. You know, the skin's a little bit inflamed, but not really. Actually, what we found through that process is it's totally manageable and it creates a really good wānanga space, um, which mm -hmm. is a space of of delving deep into yourself and into a, a process of inquiry and learning. It calls for a lot of focus and a lot of sensitivity. And because of that, the, the work heals really well. So here we yeah. have Moko Kawai. Um, yeah, this was my first as well. This was, again, a, a big step into the unknown. Um, this beautiful woman approached me uh, asking to have her, her kawai made. But putting curves on such a small area as the chin um, and it's, it's really varied terrain from the lips to the, the bump in the chin to underneath the chin um, and to, to put that on a beautiful woman's face, you know, in her mid-twenties is really um, daunting. You know, the, the process of making moko kauai is treading a really fine line of, of, of success and disaster. And mm -hmm. personally, I, I don't like doing it, but that is the role, is to help bring this back to our, our people. So coming back to the tools, my focus has been on, on the tools used on the body. And this photo here uh, of my friend, we did these patterns on her feet to reference um, her grandmother's weaving. You know, this is just 
a really common thing within, within the Māori world is when someone close in your family passes, uh, we mark ourselves or we, we do something to celebrate them. Um, so it was a very common practice in the old world to, to get your moko done when someone close to you passed away. This is, this is where we're at today. There's a lot of contemporary work being made with our various patterns from our various art forms, weaving, carving, and moko, uh, as well as new, new ones being made um, to, to help connect people with their culture, connect people with their families. You know, there's a lot of dispossessed Māori. There's a lot of urban Māori who have grown up away from the culture. There's a lot of people who work, walk with a foot in both worlds, you know, and everyone's got different needs and, and different stories to tell. So we're in a really exciting place, you know, a lot of richness happening mm. uh, within the moko world. What do you mm. ask of people who don't have a Māori heritage if they come mm. to you? Doing what I do, we get people who have really searched us out I mean, at first, most of my work was done on Europeans. Mm. It was done on tourists um, because our own people didn't want what I did. They wanted what our cousins do with the machine. So for me, there's, there's kind of a common body of patterns which are less tapu, less culturally charged, and then there are other body placements and patterns which are really charged. Um, and come with cultural responsibility. There are aspects of moko which we reserve for only Māori. Mm. There are aspects of moko which we reserve for only certain Māori. <laughs> Not every Māori can wear it. Right. Um, and there are other ways of approaching it for tourists, for, for non-Māori, right, um, who still have stories to tell. And, and this has been a really interesting thing for me is, is understanding the, the positive growth that comes out of it for the human being, right? Regardless of culture. Often you see that, that the process plants seeds of change in someone. And I mean, for us, moko, I, I, I won't go deep into it, but it, it's linked to a whole... Um, mythological reference to rupture and, and change and therefore um, growth. And all humans need this. And I see a, a non-Māori who come and, and are tattooed that that part of them has not been administered to by their own culture. And I would not want to take that away from people now. I mean, the Māori world has, has always, you know, this is a funny thing and some people don't like like hearing it, but our culture has always been for sale. The the carvings and the weaving and the moko that happen, the, the sharing of it has really contributed to its growth and its prosperity and its um, the fact that it's still here today. But there's always a point where that that sharing and that sale of it, right, the exchange of, of goods and services for something of value, um, is either done in a good spirit um, and everyone's needs are met, or it's done in a subversive perversion, right? Mm. And, and that's always up to, up to being felt out 
really. I've, I've learned to rely a lot on intuition. Yeah, this is Croc on the left, my teacher Croc Coulter. And then we're, we're sitting there drinking kava, which is one of our ceremonial drinks um, where a lot of either ritual or, or discussion happens. And so we'd sit down and have these discussions a lot. I mean, you look at Croc and, you know, he is a man who lived many lives from his English life to his life in India. He's a fellow who became a totally different person to, to the person he grew up as. And a lot of it happened through um, being tattooed. He wore patterns from the Pacific before he'd even been here. And that didn't sit comfortably with him after a while. So he knew he had to come down here to, to be amongst the people to understand better what he was wearing. You know, he was a guy who was very keen to integrate into the world he, he knew he was kind of made for, tuned into, you know. And over in the islands, they say um, he's gone to the mat. You know, he's become, a, he's become a local, he's become an islander. And, you know, that's exactly what Croc did. He, he went to the mat literally and became very integrated into the community there. And then over time, that gave him the space to, to learn the tools He's a rare example of someone who really sensitively and genuinely integrated and, and, and learnt, humbled himself and learnt under the right people. It's so interesting and, how these boundaries uh, mm. have become more fluid because of colonisation and because of the history. That sometimes people try and create, you know, clear boundaries in terms of identity. Yes. And it, yep. And especially something like this, which is so important for identity, yep. when you look at the reality, it's, it's all complex. The ideological mind doesn't like that kind of thing. It wants things to be clean cut and Māori stuff for Māori, by Māori, revived by Māori. But the reality on the ground is always more complex. You just kind of have to deal with what the universe gives you. Mm. And in this case, the universe gave the Māori world an Englishman. <laughs> you know? and, and a lot of people weren't happy about that, so they never approached them. They kept them at arm's distance. I, again, I think um, that intuition plays a big part in, in things being permeable sometimes. But also Māori are, we are a people who integrate things really quickly. Mm. Um, and that includes people we take people in and we claim them as our own um, we we take in you know religion or or new technologies claim them as our own now the tattoo machine has all these maori names i, I think that's part of our our success and survival has been an adaptability and and you know we just digest things quickly it's just been fantastic hearing your kōrero and mataranga, your knowledge, your, your talk and your knowledge. And I'm incredibly grateful to you, Moko, for mm. sharing all of this. So thank you. And, and I'm really happy I got to share some experience with you. <laughs> so much. And I could keep on asking you many more questions, but <laughs> I will stop now. <laughs> thank Next you. Time. 
Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.